Hi everybody, welcome to a new episode on my channel, The Dissenter. Today we will be talking about science and pseudoscience and my guest is Dr. Massimo Piliucci. He is a professor of philosophy at CUNY City College, formerly co-host of the Rationally Speaking podcast and also formerly the editor-in-chief for the online magazine Scientia Salon. He is also the author of several books, including Phenotypic Plasticity, Philosophy of Pseudoscience, and the most recent one, How to Be a Stoic. Dr. Piliucci, thank you so much for accepting the invitation. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> okay, great. Okay, so uh, I, w I invited you because I wanted to talk about the philosophy of pseudoscience with someone and you of course wrote this book with this exact same title and so the first question i would like to ask you is uh, what is the demarcation problem in the philosophy of science so demarcation problem is a phrase that was coined by uh, karl popper one of the most influential philosophers of science of the 20th century and uh, he, he thought that this was the issue of how to distinguish science from non-science and from pseudoscience. Of course, those are two different issues, actually. Uh, they're both demarcation issues. Uh, one is the distinction between science and whatever else, like, you know, literature or philosophy or, you know, you name it. And then another one is, of course, the distinction between science and pseudoscience. So things, you know, the difference between physics, let's say, and astrology or something like that. Uh, they're both interesting problems for a variety of reasons. Uh, from a... Um, general philosophical perspective, so in terms of sort of general epistemology, we want to know, we want to have a better idea of what science is, because, you know, it's a major part of what we do. It's a, it's, it's, it's a very influential in, in modern society. It has been influential, of course, for at least the last 300 years or so. So it's, a, it's an interesting question to ask, well, what exactly is this, this thing that we call science? It also has practical applications because, of course, a distinction between science and pseudoscience, for instance, uh, would help us, you know, essentially separating the good stuff from the bad stuff, right? Uh, so that we don't have to waste time and energy and resources, uh, you know, pursuing uh, things that are that are actually sort of scientific. Turns out, however, that to make that to draw that line of demarcation, it's actually much more difficult than than Popper actually thought uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Yes, and it's interesting because uh, the proposal coming from Karl Popper was that science would be something that is falsifiable, right? But why, why is it this criterion for something to be falsifiable not enough to, for something to be considered scientific? Well, it's a good question, and it's, it's an interesting one because even still today, a lot of scientists who obviously don't usually have training in philosophy, they, they still think that falsifiability is a good criterion. Uh, in fact, there are, there are discussions going on in the fundamental uh, physics community where people are accusing each other of you know, failing the falsifiability criterion when it comes to theories such as you know, string theory in, uh, and the multiverse and things like that. So it's kind of interesting. It's kind of a, almost, I would say, amusing for me as a philosopher that uh, a lot of scientists are actually still going by a, a, an approach that in philosophy has been, you know, superseded by several, for several decades now. But here, let, so here, let, let, let's try to understand exactly what the problem is. So first of all, what is falsifiability? 
According to Popper, a notion is falsifiable if there is a way, at least in principle, to show that it is false, if it is false. Right? So if I were to say, for instance, um, you know, uh, right now I'm in, uh, in uh, Toronto instead of New York, uh, that notion is falsifiable because you could actually look up my, the IP address of my computer and say, wait, what are you talking about? It, it looks like you are in, actually in New York. Or you can send somebody you know, to my apartment and check and say, hey, what do you mean? It's, it's, you're actually in your city, not in Toronto. So, it's, so my claim that I am in Toronto rather than in New York City is in fact a falsifiable claim and it turns out to be false. Now, if I claim, on the, on the other hand, one of the things we need to understand is that falsifiability doesn't mean false falsification, meaning that, you know, I can actually make the opposite claim and I can say, look, I'm, I'm talking to you from New York City. That's also a falsifiable statement because it can be checked empirically, but it happens to be true. It's not, it's not, it's not false. So, um, so Popper's idea was like, look, science is based on falsifiable claims and pseudoscience fails because its claims are not falsifiable. But it turns out that neither one of those two things is true. Right? So there are plenty of examples from the history of science of notions that were put forth initially by scientists and accepted provisionally, even though they were not immediately falsifiable. Right? So the, one of the obvious examples is the, uh, uh, or in fact, uh, even worse, they were falsifiable and appear to be false. Like the, the, the Copernican theory of the structure of the solar system initially appeared to be falsified because if you used Copernicus theory to predict the positions of the planets in the sky, you really wouldn't do very well. And the reason for that is because uh, the theory initially uh, assumed that the orbits of the planets were circular, and they're not, they're elliptical, right? Now, once Kepler realized that, uh, a few decades later, he said, ah, wait a minute, we can just tweak a little bit the theory. And, uh, and, and the, sure enough, it worked out, and the observations uh, uh, support the theory. But if Popper had been around when Copernicus was alive, he would have said, ah, this is pseudoscience, it's, it's, it's been falsified, and you've got to throw it away. Obviously, fortunately, astronomers didn't do that. On the other side of the divide, there is also plenty of scientific no sorry, pseudoscientific notions that are falsifiable and have, in fact, been shown to be false. Astrolog astrological claims, for instance, have been tested empirically a number of times. You know, there are a lot of published uh, you know, uh, peer-reviewed papers that actually have put to the test uh, certain notions in astrology, and astrology, not surprisingly, has failed the test. So here's a situation where something is in fact a pseudoscience, but it's perfectly falsifiable. So clearly the falsifiability criterion just does not cut it. I think that Popper is right where he says that, broadly speaking, in the long run, scientific theories need to be falsifiable. I mean, if it turns out that there is no way, even in principle, to falsify a notion, then I would actually agree that um, that notion doesn't belong to science. It may be metaphysics, it may be something else, but it's not science. But to insist that something has to be immediately falsifiable, that doesn't sound right. And also to insist that uh, pseudoscientific notions are, are, are characterized by the lack of falsifiability, that also doesn't sound right. Mm -hmm. Yes, because, uh, for example, when we test an hypothesis and, uh, uh, and in the end we turn out that it is false, we still gather some scientific knowledge from that, yeah. right? 
That's right. That's correct. I mean, uh, you know, again, that's the example of the Copernican theory is a perfect one, uh, but also many others in, in, uh, in the history of science, like the original version of Darwinism, for instance, if we're talking about biology and evolutionary theory. Well, the original version is not accepted today anymore. Uh, that's why people talk about something uh, called the modern synthesis, uh, which is a, you know updated version of, of the original Darwinian idea. Uh, there are certain things that Darwin believed that turn out to be incorrect, and there are other things that he had no idea uh, that uh, we discovered later, and we sort of we incorporated into the theory and we expanded the theory. So yes, every in fact, I would argue that that's how science works. We learn by. Uh, from by mistakes, essentially. So by eliminating uh, older theories, by tweaking, you know, improving on older theories. I mean, there is a there is a thing in philosophy of science called the pessimistic meta-induction, which is a fancy name for the simple observation that every single scientific theory of the past turned out to be wrong. Right now, it's pessimistic. But I don't see why, because that's how we learn. <laughs> it's, 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 you know, it's true, Newton was wrong in a sense, but he was sufficiently right that we learned a lot about how the world works. And then when we progressed to the point of figuring out where exactly Newton went wrong, then we got you know, Einstein's theory of general relativity, and, um, and now we're better. Uh, but we also already know that even Einstein's theory can't be the right the right thing, you know, it's not the right, you know, the final theory that we, we know that it's incorrect or at least incomplete. So, but that's just the nature of science. It, it learns and it improves by uh, making mistakes and correcting mistakes. Mm -hmm. Yes, and another set of two criteria that, that I think that people usually point to as historically uh, have been introduced by the by science and the scientific method. At least this is what many people say: are predictability and the explanatory power of the scientific method. But I mean, even. Uh, things like uh, making predictions and trying to explain uh, how certain phenomena in the world occurred. Uh, this was not really, in terms of epistemology, introduced by the scientific method, because we could say that, for example, when people in ancient times uh, tried to predict certain events uh, and the explanation they gave to those events were things based on myths, they, yeah. they, they were the same predicting things we, right. we, with a certain margin of error, let's say, and, right. and providing an explanation, but that was still not science, right? That's correct. I mean, if you're talking about, for instance, uh, you know, the Ptolemaic system, uh, again, before Copernicus, right? The Ptolemaic system was kind of proto-scientific. I mean, it's not, it wasn't really science as we understand it today. It was kind of, you know, it's, it was an attempt to figure out how things work in that, and it was completely wrong. And yet, it did make it possible for people to make, you know, reasonable predictions about the position of of planets in the sky. So even theories that are completely wrong can actually, in, in terms of sort of substantive terms, substantive terms, can actually be useful for predictions. Again, Newtonian theory is technically wrong, and yet it's used. It's still used to send, you know, probes to Mars. You know, that's that's what we use. Uh, to that. We don't use general relativity because it's too complicated. Uh, so it's a, it's a sufficient approximation. We know it to be wrong, but it's sufficient approximation so that we can make predictions about, about uh, on, on its basis. So yeah, predictability, again, it's one of those things that, yes, it, you, would, you want it. You want uh, scientific theories to 
make predictable, you know, uh, statements about about how the world works. But even within the science, a lot of the sciences are in fact historical, right? Like paleontology or geology or astronomy. So they don't make predictions in the sense of figuring out, uh, you know, telling you what's going to happen in the future. They make what some philosophers refer to as post-predictions. That is, they, they make predictions about the past, right? And yet, they sometimes those predictions work out spectacularly well, like the case of um, uh, the uh, meteorite that hit the Earth 65 million years ago and helped, uh, you know, finishing off the dinosaurs and, and a lot of other life forms. That uh, theory uh, had a, you know, came up, came with a number of postdictions. For instance, uh, if there was a big, uh, you know, impact that caused uh, all that mayhem, then we should see the crater. We should, we should be able to find the crater. And for a long time, the crater wasn't found. And then they did find it, right, right, right off uh, by satellite Im imagery, uh, right off the coast, coast of the Yucatan in, uh, in in Mexico. So that was a spectacular confirmation of the theory, and that confirmation happened decades after the theory was proposed. But it wasn't a prediction in the normal sense of the of the word. It wasn't predicting anything in the future. It was predicting something that actually happened in the past and that we should have observed, uh, given the right conditions. But uh, that's another good example also of the fact that there are limitations to predictability in science. Let's say, for instance, that we had not found the, the crater of the Yucatan, right? Well, there could have been other reasons for not finding it, not, not because the impact did not happen, but because the crater had been erased by erosion. Uh, in fact, it's kind of a miracle that the crater is still visible 65, 65 million years ago. A lot of craters that have uh, uh, you know, resulted from impacts of uh, celestial bodies on Earth have been erased because the Earth has an atmosphere that uh, does things. You know, there's winds, there's water, there's all sorts of stuff that uh, that um, erases uh, traces of historical uh, uh, happenings. Mm -hmm. Yes, and because uh, I think that most of my audience is composed by skeptics and scientists, I think that by now uh, they might be starting to get a bit depressive <laughs> because we're talking about uh, things that basically aren't good enough criteria to distinguish science from pseudoscience. So yeah. is there a set of criteria that we have at our disposal that are really infallible when trying to distinguish science from pseudoscience? No. Uh, so philosophers tried that for a long time, right? After, after Popper, uh, philosophers for decades tried to figure out a small set of necessary and, and sufficient conditions to define science. And they clearly failed. There is, you know, it, it was worth trying because like, you know, it's the kind of thing that you want to buy. Again, philosophy, just like science, you, you, you learn from your mistakes. And it's, it, it, began, it began to be clear by the late 70s, early 80s that this was just not going to happen. And then a, a very influential philosopher of science, uh, Larry Laudan, uh, published a, uh, an interesting paper where he said, basically, look, black guys, give up. There's no demarcation line between science and pseudoscience. We just, you know, we've been wasting time. Let's do something else. That paper convinced a lot of philosophers uh, and a good number of scientists, I suppose, that, uh, that you know, there was no point in keep, keep looking for demarcation criteria. Then my colleague and friend Martin Baldry and I, uh, a few years ago, uh, came back and said, wait a minute, hold on, that was a little too quick. Uh, because it's true that there is no set of necessary and sufficient conditions that define science, but that doesn't mean that there is no definition of science. 
it doesn't mean we don't know what we're talking about when when we talk about science. Uh, it turns out, in, so that's how that book that you're referring to came out. It's, it's a collection of new papers on the demarcation problem. And the first five papers, in fact, in that, in that book are a response to Laudan. And, and there are you know, five different philosophers arguing, no, wait a minute, hold on. There's, there's still a lot that can be said here, even though uh, the search for necessary and insufficient criteria is not a good one. Uh, I think that the consensus now in philosophy of science is that science is a family resemblance concept. A family resemblance concept is a notion that was introduced by Wittgenstein uh, uh, back in the middle part of the 20th century. Now, Wittgenstein was not a philosopher of science, he was a philosopher of language, if anything. Uh, but he was interested in language and concepts. And uh, his famous example of a family resemblance concept is, is the uh, idea of a game. So if I ask you to define, to give me a, a sharp definition that separates games from non-games, uh, you might think that's easy, but it's actually very difficult uh, because anything you say, you know, so if you say things like, well, games are competitive, uh, for instance, I can uh, argue that there are some games that are not competitive, like solitaire, when you play cards uh, with yourself, essentially. And then there's a bunch of things, of course, that are, that are competitive, but they're not games. Uh, uh, if you say, well, there are rules, uh, the same thing. There are lots of things that are not games and they have rules. If you say, well, they're done for fun, well, there's lots of things that are done for fun, but they're not games, and they're actually games that are played not for fun at all, but professional, you know, like, for instance, you know, professional tennis or something like that. So now that doesn't, now Wittgenstein said, that doesn't mean we don't know what we're talking about when, when we're talking about games. We, we can, broadly speaking, distinguish games from non-games, and how do we do that? We point to examples. We basically build a search image by example and say, okay, that thing is a game, that thing is not a game, and then occasionally, of course, we will come across things that are uncertain it's like well i don't know is this thing a game or is it not is it you know it's kind of in between and those examples are interesting because they are they tell you where the border lines are between the concept of game and the stuff that it's not a game so we think that the same thing applies to the demarcation problem it's not like we can't tell science from pseudoscience physics is science biology is science chemistry is science Astrology is pseudoscience, parapsychology is pseudoscience, uh, creationism is pseudoscience, and so on and so forth. Those are pretty clear examples. But then there are examples in between. Like parapsychology for a long time actually was a borderline case. Now I think, I mean, I'm sure you will get uh, angry uh, comments from some uh, 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 viewers because they'll disagree with this, but I, 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 I'm pretty satisfied at this point that, you know, telepathy and clairvoyance are just out of the question at this point. There is enough uh, empirical evidence that, that rules them out. But for a long time, this was actually an open question. There are still open questions at the borderlines, like, for instance, evolutionary psychology, which is a field within, you know, at the borderlines between psychology, uh, which is a social science, and uh, evolutionary biology. Well, some aspects of, you know, some parts of evolutionary psychology are perfectly scientific. I mean, the, the idea that um, uh, human behavior evolved uh, naturally, and that at least some of that evolution is the result of natural selection, sure, I, I don't see why not. Uh, there is pretty reasonable evidence that some of those behaviors, for instance, the, the flight of fear, uh, you know, the, the, the fear response that it's, a, at, uh, at, uh, you know, normally referred to as the uh, fight or flight response, well, that's pretty clearly evolved, and it's pretty adaptive. We find it in a bunch of other species of, you know, mammals and, and um, invertebrates in general. Uh, 
when it comes to other claims, like, uh, I don't know, women in the 21st century wear high heels because they, you know, as a result of sexual selection, I don't know, that seems much more difficult to sort of back up and seems like it's sliding into territory that it's, uh, that it's, that it's a little bit more questionable. So, so even today, there are fields at the borderlines, and actually, I think those are the interesting fields. Because, you know, it's not particularly interesting to say that astrology is a pseudoscience. Everybody knows that, except for the astrologers, of course. Um, and it's also not particularly interesting that physics is a, a, a science. Yeah, well, no kidding. Everybody knows that. Um, but it, the, the, the borderlines are more interesting. Now, some of these borderlines run within fields, like, for instance, evolutionary psychology that I just gave you an example of, or string theory and the multiverse in physics. There is a really interesting discussion going on now in the physics community about the scientific status of those theories, because for a long time, for decades, string theory and the multiverse, which are somewhat related to each other, I mean, they're not the same thing, but, but string theory, as it turns out, predicts a multiverse, uh, you know, certain versions of a multiverse. Um, those notions have been around for decades, and they've been initially considered perfectly reasonable science because they come out of mathematical uh, extrapolations from quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics is perfectly scientific. It's, in fact, it's arguably the most scientifically tested theory of all times. So for a long time, the scientific community, you know, the physics community did not have a problem with that. But now we're talking, you know, several decades, you know, almost half a century after these, these notions were put out and it turns out they're not going anywhere, they're not, they're not testable, some people are beginning to argue that they are in principle not testable and not just as a matter of empirical limitations that may be uh, overcome one of these days. So there is a really vibrant discussion within the physics community uh, about, you know, are these things, should, should these things be discarded at this point because they're kind of sliding into the, if not pseudo-scientific, certainly not in, in the non-scientific. Uh, there are some people that I'm sympathetic to that think that um, string theory and multiverse are, look a lot more like metaphysics, and so they belong more to philosophy than to physics itself. And these discussions are interesting not just because, because you know, in terms of, uh, sort of from an intellectual perspective, uh, for, for both for physicists and for philosophers, uh, but also practically, because frankly, you know, there's millions of dollars of uh, funding that go into uh, grant proposals and, uh, uh, you know, graduate students and faculty positions and things like that. Uh, and uh, so we're talking about money. You know, th these things actually matter in, uh, in practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting that you refer to those sorts of borderline fields of science, because uh, I had a question for you that was uh, a bit below the, the next one, but I will ask it right away. That is one another of the main reasons why it is so difficult for us to define science and the scientific method is because uh, all the things that we classify as science they are not really a unified type of activity. So, for example, what, what we do in physics and chemistry is very far apart from what is done at the level of the social sciences, for example, right? Yeah, that's correct. And in fact, that's a notion that it's really difficult to get across to scientists, <laughs> especially, to, especially to physicists. Um, because physicists, you know, fundamental physicists tend to think that, you know, every other branch of science is pretty much a subset of physics. Uh, you know, that, that, that's why they refer to their, their theories as the ultimate theory of everything, you know, things like that. But in practice, it turns out that fundamental physics has very little to say, in fact, it has nothing to say to most of the other 
sciences. You know, you, you rarely use fundamental physics when you do biological research uh, or genetics or uh, ecology uh, or geology, and let alone the social sciences. It has absolutely nothing to say to the social sciences. Now, let me be clear on what I'm saying here. I'm not suggesting that any of these other sciences somehow contradict or are incompatible with fundamental physics. I completely, I'm, I'm completely on board with the idea that the only things in the universe that exist at the bottom are whatever it is the fundamental physicists tell us exists. So if it turns out to be quarks, it's going to be quarks. If it's super string, it's going to be super string. If it's uh, one of the most crazy theories that I've heard over the last few years is that in fact there is nothing at the bottom, it's just fields. It's like, fine, whatever it is, whatever fundamental physics tells us, it's, it's okay with me. But the fact of the matter is, quarks don't do anything for a psychologist. They don't do anything for a biologist, they don't do anything for a geologist. So uh, most of science is in fact disunified. Um, it's, uh, there's a really nice book that came out a number of years by um, a, a philosopher, a colleague, colleague of mine, uh, John Dupre, that it's called Disunity of Science. And this unity of science is a fundamental notion in philosophy of science. Not everybody agrees on it, but I, I tend to agree with what you were saying a minute ago. That is, science is actually itself, you know, it follows from, from what we were saying earlier. If you think of science as a family resemblance concept, then families are, you know, diffused. They're all sorts of, they're all over the place. And there's nothing necessarily that all of those members of the family have in common. Uh, right. So even when people talk about the scientific method, there's no such thing as the scientific method. If you're a biologist, you use very different tools than if you're a chemist or if you're a psychologist or if you're you know, an e a, a, a economist. So uh, science uses whatever works. Science is a very pragmatic activity. Now, of course, there are certain things that, are, that, that all of the sciences have in common. They typically search if they don't have any yet, but at least search, ideally, for a theoretical structure. You know, you want an overarching theory that organizes your thoughts. And, of course, uh, it, the pronouncements of science, the conclusions of science, are always based on empirical information, right? Either systematic observations or experiments or a combination of those. That's the kind of stuff that pretty much all of the sciences have in common. But other than that, it, they all work very differently. You cannot do paleontology in the way in which you do chemistry. It's just completely different kind of things. You, you learn very different kinds of skills. You think in a different way, right? A chemist tend to be uh, trained in uh, more essentially these days in, in physics. Uh, you know, it, it thinks like a physicist. Uh, it's, it's all about laws that are, they have no, no exceptions. There are, it's all about doing things under control conditions and so on and so forth. A paleontologist, on the other hand, uh, thinks a lot more like a Sherlock Holmes kind of thing. He's an investigator. It's, it's, a, it's about individual events that happen in history, and they're not necessarily repeatable. You know, the dinosaurs went once. It's not that that event has been repeated. It's, it happened 65 million years ago, and that's it. And yet, we can still do science, but we, we're, we're doing science about it, not in the way in which you know, a chemist would. Mm -hmm. Yes, and in terms of criteria, just to talk about another criterion that people usually point toward nowadays, as being a distinct feature of science or of the scientific method, that is replicability. So it seems obvious, at least to me, that if something in science doesn't get replicated, then it, uh, in principle, it's, it's false, right? But uh, 
we, we can't know how many times a particular thing has to be replicated in order for us to, to know that it, that it corresponds to something that is really real, let's say. Right. Yeah, no, that's true. So replicability, it's, it's a big issue. And again, there, it's very different in different sciences, right? In physics, replicability, it's pretty simple, pretty straightforward. You know, if you want to do, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to belittle the physicists here. They, they, what they do is, is wonderful work. But at the same time, they're working on the simplest, literally the simplest things in the universe, right? So quarks, or electrons, you know, fundamental particles. So if you are after things like, you know, I want to figure out the, the property of, of the electron. Well, once you figure out a good experimental approach to that, that experiment can be easily replicated all over the world and yields pretty much the same results. And so you're good. You're fine. Um, now, let's talk, on the other hand, uh, about a psychologist who is interested in certain aspects of human behavior. Well, that's going to be a lot more difficult because human beings are different. They're not like electrons. They're, we're not created equal, right? Uh, so it depends on, on how the experiment is done, how, what the sample size is. Um, if it's done on undergraduate, you know, most experiments in psychology, for convenience's sake, are done on undergraduate students in psychology because they're cheap. Um, but, you know, that means you're limited to a very particular population. Uh, what happens if you replicate the experiment in a broader population, if, you, if you know, it's culturally diverse, if it's gender diverse, if it is age diverse, uh, and so on and so forth. And so replicability in the social sciences is much, much harder. That's one part of the problem with replicability. The other part of the problem, problem frankly, is that there's not much of an incentive to do it. You know, the person who wins the Nobel Prize is the first one that got the experiment right, not the one that repeats it. You know, re repeating the, someone else's uh, findings, it's important, but frankly, it doesn't get to the girl, so to speak. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't give you the prize. And so there's been really not much of a disincentive. You don't build a scientific career on replicating other people's experiments. And so there is this idea. Uh, th this has caused for a long time, especially in the social sciences, this, this notion that, well, you go on, you do this spectacular experiment, you find the results, and that's it, done. And then those results get into the, the textbooks. And now we're finding out that, as it turns out, the estimate is between uh, two-thirds, uh, sorry, between one-third and, and uh, almost half of experiments in psychology that made it into textbooks. So we're talking about big stuff here. Uh, it turns out not to be replicable. Now, again, um, I will caution, however, the critics. Because, you know, it's easy to say, well, let's dismiss the psychology, then it's, it's all a bunch of, you know, uh, you know, unreplicable stuff. Well, hold on a second, because now we do have, I mean, first of all, who, who figured out that there was a problem? Other psychologists, right? Other scientists came back and said, wait a minute, I tried to replicate this thing, it didn't turn out. So it is, again, we're still seeing the self-correcting mechanism of science at work. So... Let them work. Let him let him figure it out. Now the replicability projects uh, are becoming more and more widespread, both in the social sciences and in biology, for instance. And that's a good thing. It requires time. It requires effort. It requires money. Uh, but it's a good thing. What I would say, however, as a result of this uh, replicability crisis, so to speak, which also, by the way, affects medical research, uh, even more worrisome, actually, because, you know, psychology, fine, you know. Uh, it does have practical applications, but most of us, you know, it's not, it's not life-threatening kind of stuff. On the other hand, medical research concerns, uh, you know, people's health. Um, so, so when you find a problem like that in medical research, it's even more troublesome. Uh, but there, too, is being, uh, you know, uh, addressed by medical researchers, of course, who are trying to do their, you know, their best to improve the situation. 
What I would say, the, the, the uh, lesson to be drawn from this is not, oh, I'm not going to go to the doctor anymore because they don't know anything, or I'm not going to go to the psychologist because they don't know anything. That's, that would be the wrong lesson to draw. The right lesson to draw, however, is don't get on the bandwagon of the latest you know, fancy discovery. If you, if, if you read in the newspaper that, uh, you know, a psychologist published a paper and, and it turns out uh, that this really strange human behavior has been, you know, it happens and uh, it has caused, hold on, but wait a minute, don't change your life as a result of it. Uh, you know, that, 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 uh, let me give you a particular example. Uh, even in the last several years, there's been research uh, that uh, has shown that caffeine is good for you or caffeine is bad for you or caffeine doesn't matter for you and so on and so forth. So what I would do is that, you know, if, you, if you're drinking a normal amount of coffee, don't change your behavior just because you read in the newspaper that caffeine is bad for you because tomorrow you might read that it's good for you. Just suspend your belief because in, in, at the moment the research is going not clear. Don't, don't jump on the latest if we're talking about research that's been repeated over and over, and it's you know fairly uh, accepted by the mainstream uh, in that particular field, then sure, then you might might want to pay attention. For instance, one thing to pay attention to is that a lot of people spend a lot of money uh, to uh, use uh, uh, vitamin supplements, uh, you know, every day in their in their in their in their diet, and most vitamin supplements don't work. We, we now know this, this, this kind of research is being replicated, and we know pretty well that you're wasting a lot of money uh, to produce essentially very expensive pee. So that's, that's, all, that's all you're doing. Now, there are exceptions, like, you know, vitamin D actually does make a difference. Iron does uh, make a difference if, you're, if you suffer from iron deficiency. But almost everything else makes no difference whatsoever. So don't imbibe a lot of vitamins. Don't spend a lot of money. In fact, it turns out that if you imbibe too many vitamins, that's actually going to be bad for you because there is a condition called vitaminosis, which is actually bad for your health. Um, so that's what I'm saying, that if there is something that has been repeated and is now accepted by the mainstream in that field, sure, uh, then it might be a good idea uh, to change your behavior accordingly. Uh, like today, for instance, it would be crazy for somebody to say, well, the jury is still out there about the connection between smoking and cancer. No, it isn't. <laughs> the connection is pretty damn clear. Uh, so if I were you, I wouldn't smoke. You know, I don't, I'm not going to wait for another study to show me that that is the case. Uh, it's, it's, it's fine as it is. But for a lot of the other stuff, like there, was a, there were some resu interesting results um, that people started paying attention a few years ago from psychology about, about a phenomenon called priming. Mm -hmm. And so this, the priming is this idea that um, you, you may be responding in certain situations to sort of unconscious signals, of, you know, signals of which you're not aware of. And for instance, one of the, the, the famous experiments was this idea that if you go on a date um, and your date is holding a cold drink, he or she will react, you know, in a cold way to your advances, right? She's, she's not going to do, you're not going to do well on the date. On the other hand, if, you, if, if, uh, if your date holds a hot beverage like a tea or a coffee or something, like that, then, then he's, he or she's going to react better. That sounded too good to be true even when it was published first. It's like, really? I don't know about that. It's like, that, that, that just doesn't strike me as a good, uh, you know, as, as a reasonable conclusion. Sure enough, it, it's unreplicable. You know, when, when people try to replicate it, the result, the original result did not turn out to be uh, replicable. So I wouldn't worry about, you know, don't change the behavior you have on your day. You know, if you want to have a, a, a cold drink, go ahead and have a cold drink. <laughs> uh, it's, not, it's not a big deal. 
that's the, that's the kind of stuff. So I, I would say use common sense in that sense. If it's well-established science, trust it. If it's not well-established science, then suspend your judgment because that's the way science works. It's a self-correcting mechanism, but it's not instantly self-correcting. It takes sometimes it takes years to self-correct. Mm -hmm. Very well. And do you think that in this discussion that we're having about uh, what is science and what is pseudoscience and what are the criteria to distinguish between them, do you think that it is also important to distinguish between pseudoscience and anti-science? That is, uh, pseudoscience as being something that is not scientific but uses, for example, scientific jargon and uh, and some sort of scientific methodology. Uh, and uh, anti-science as being something that is openly against science. Yeah, I think it's an interesting distinction, uh, especially from a sort of an anthropological perspective, I would say, right, in terms of sort of range of human behaviors. Because you're right, not just like not, we said earlier that not all sciences work in the same way, that you know, there's a disunity of science. Well, there's also a disunity of pseudoscience uh, and or anti-science. I mean, there's, there's very different things. In fact, for one thing, uh, it turns out that uh, if, if somebody be believes in UFOs, for instance, they not necessarily believe in astrology and vice versa, right? So there, there are different kinds. If somebody believes in creationism, usually they don't believe in astrology. Uh, because they find astrology to be contrary to their religious beliefs. So, you know, now to me as an external, as a scientist, they all look like pseudoscience, but to the people from the inside, they're very different. There's also that distinction that you're talking about, which is there is a rejection of science, like for instance, the anti-vaccination movement, uh, I would consider not pseudoscientific, but anti-scientific. It, uh, you know, it's not like they're pretending to be doing science, it's they're really rejecting the findings of science in favor of personal experience, right? The, the famous uh, spokesperson for that movement, Jenny McCartney, um, once famously said that, you know, you can do all the science you want, but I know my son, you know, and, and I have that, that personal direct experience. Well, when you think that your personal direct experience trumps systematic observations and experiments, then you're definitely being anti-science, you know, producing pseudoscience. On the other hand, let's say somebody who does experiments on telepathy, um, they are uh, pseudoscientific in the sense that they really, or even UFOs, you know, research on UFOs, they try to be scientific. They have the trappings of science. You go, there are, there are you know, conferences about ufology, there are, there, are, there are magazines that publish papers about UFOs, uh, there are people that do statistics on uh, UFO sightings, you know, things like that. So they're trying to ape the uh, trappings of science, except that they're not. In fact, I would say that one of the best definitions of pseudoscience is precisely that one. It's an enterprise that it's clearly not scientific, and yet it's pretending to be scientific. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And in terms of the example of uh, people who espouse intelligent design, that is, people that, that I think most of them or all of them are religious, and they say that uh, all that exists basically was created by some sort of divine entity, right? So would you classify that specifically as pseudoscience or anti-science? Because it's not clear to me. Yeah, that's an interesting question because that may actually very well be a borderline case depending on the specifics. But if we're talking about people like... Uh, uh, Bill Dembski or, or Michael Behe, you know, some major uh, proponents of intelligent design uh, creationism, 
uh, they are trying to do scientific. I mean, Michael B is a microbiologist, and you know, he, he wrote a couple of books arguing that it is the science that shows that evolution is, is wrong, right? So, in that sense, they are being pseudoscientific because they are, they are pretending to be science, science, doing science, uh, even though their notions are pseudoscientific. Um, but that said, there are some religious objections to evolution that are simply that religious. You know, uh, um, they're not even pretend to be scientific. They don't. They don't say. You know, there are a lot of creationists who don't pretend to be doing uh, uh, scientific research. They just say, "No, I believe in the Bible because it's the word of God." End of story. Well, that I would I would classify as anti-science, not not uh, not pseudoscience. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and what would you say are the main reasons why it is important for us to properly distinguish pseudoscience from science? Is it because uh, it may be dangerous to believe in something that is pseudo-scientific. I think there are a number of reasons. Uh, there is a there, there, are, there are some reasons that are purely intellectual. Right? It's it's an interesting phenomenon. I mean, the the, the the notion that there are people out there who pretend to be doing science while in fact they're doing something that it's not at all. Uh, it's I think it's it's interesting from a sociological perspective. I think it's interesting from an anthropological. Uh, there is also another intellectual aspect to it, which is the philosophical approach, you know, the philosophical and epistemological approach to, yeah, what, what is this thing that we call science, uh, and, and so on. But yes, you're right. Uh, the major reason, I think, is practical. Uh, that is, you want to warn people to stay away from certain things precisely because they only pretend to be science, but in fact they're dangerous. Um, uh, they're dangerous for people's health, right? If you don't vaccinate your kids, uh, you know, your kids going to suffer. Uh, from uh, one infection or another, and you're going to be putting other people at um, uh, at risk. Uh, if um, uh, if you believe in astrology, it depends. You might be making major decisions in your life based on nothing, you know, based on based on fluff, and it would be much better to to do it based on you know reasonable evidence, empirical evidence, rather than uh, somebody's uh, astrological chart. Uh, also, people waste a lot of money. Uh, people are taken advantage of. Uh, you know, by psychics, for instance, right? So people spend a lot of money on psychic hotlines and things like that. And that's just taking advantage of other people because maybe they're suffering because they lost a loved one or something like that. And, and the, the psychic tells them that uh, they, they're going to get in touch with the dead uh, on the other side. Uh, so so there's all sorts of practical reasons, I think, to be aware of suicides. There is also an additional, I think, reason, which is educational, if you will. Uh, the argument has been made a long time ago that if you start believing crap, then you start thinking crap in a crappy way in general, right? And we are seeing this spectacularly, I think, today with the onset of fake news and post-truth and things like that, right? So we live in a, in a society where a lot of um, uh, Trump supporters, for instance, in the United States are also conspiracy theorists. They believe in all sorts of conspiracy theories. And so you can see there an obvious an, uh, example of how something that one might say is not particularly dangerous. I mean, you know, what does it matter if I think if somebody thinks that JFK was killed by the government or something like that? It's like, oh, who cares? Or if, he, of, or, or, or if they think that uh, NASA didn't actually land on the moon, you know, things like that. Well, turns out, once you start believing those things, then you start believing all sorts of other things, and then you end up voting for... Uh, a, a narcissist uh, who is about to destroy the American economy <laughs> and possibly start a nuclear war. So, as you can see, these things do have consequences. You know, bad thinking has consequences. Once you get in the habit of bad thinking, once you don't challenge 
uh, that that habit, then then there is a slippery slope there. Mm-hmm. Yes, and because of all of the things we've been talking here today, uh, and also the fact that nowadays, particularly from fields like anthropology and psychology, we know that uh, science is at least very unintuitive for people because people have to go through a hard process of learning and changing their cognitive processes, let's say, to be able to process scientific knowledge and, and to understand the scientific method. Would, right. you say, would you say that because of that, we should consider science as a cultural construct, but not in the same sense that, for example, postmoderns talk of science being a cultural right. construct? Right. Well, in a, in a sense, science definitely is a cultural contrast construct, meaning that it is a social activity. Right? So uh, one of the best philosophers who have written about this is uh, Ellen Nongino, uh, who's written a couple of, uh, of really good books about the social construction of, of knowledge. And you're right, she doesn't mean the postmodern you know, version of it in which, well, anything goes, you know, what you say, it's, it's not different from what I say. No, that's not what we're talking about. What we're saying is that science is, in fact, a social activity. It's made of certain kinds of people who do certain kinds of things, like, you know, peer review and grants and uh, universities, you know, all of those are social structures. They don't exist in nature. They don't exist out there, right? We create them and, and we keep changing them. You know, the, the, the way science was done, for instance, in the time of Galileo and Newton is very different from the way in which science is done today. Uh, so, so science itself changes over time because social, social structures change and we, we do things differently. So in that sense, science is certainly a social activity. Now, in terms of what you were saying earlier, that is, you know, science is complicated and is unintuitive. That's right. So that's why I think that, you know, there's no beating around the bushes here. People need to get into this idea that uh, when it comes to science, you just need to trust the experts. And this is a very unpopular opinion, especially in the United States, where people are convinced that if they just Google something, then they'll understand it. No. You won't. I'm sorry. You know, that would be like me with basically no training in mathematics say, well, let me see. I'm going to Google the, 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 uh, the proof of Fermat's last theorem, and then I'm going to see if I agree with, with it or not. That's nonsense. I have no idea how to do a mathematical proof, let alone one that is as, as complicated as, as Fermat's last theorem. So it would be completely silly of me to, to even think about something like that. So in, unfortunately, we need to trust expertise. That's not to say that the experts are infallible. They're not, for sure. <laughs> we just said that science is self-correcting. Self-correcting implies that people make mistakes, right? So yes, experts make mistakes. It's the, the way I think about it is it's a question of bet. You are much better off betting on the fact that the expert is likely to be right than you know your average Joe uh, around the corner. And by the way, this should not be, I mean, this sounds like whenever I, I present this idea, this notion, it sounds like it's like, wow, this is so elitist and it's so unaccepted, it's undemocratic and all this. But we actually do it in every other aspect of life. Every, think about it. If you have a car and you're not a mechanic and the car breaks down, where do you go? You don't fix it yourself. You go to the mechanic, right? Why? Because the mechanic is the expert. If you have a toothache, even if you are a dentist, where are you going to go? To the dentist. Why to the dentist? Because the dentist is the expert and so on and so forth, right? If you have financial, you know, if you want to know how to invest your money, you go to a financial analyst. You don't try to do it on your own because it's a catastrophe if you don't, unless 
you have enough knowledge, of course, of you know finances or enough knowledge of car mechanics. But most of us don't. Most of us don't have enough knowledge of quantum mechanics uh, or, or evolutionary biology or paleontology and so on and so forth, or climate change uh, science. So no, we gotta trust the experts. And if the experts change their mind, that's their business. That's that's, that's what happens. Um, now, when it comes to practical applications of science, you know, yeah, I just mentioned climate change, right? Uh, it is true that I think we should, on the one hand, trust the experts. You know, so all these people that say, "Oh, I don't, I don't believe in climate change." I, I want to ask them, well, on what basis? Uh, just because you Google something, it, it doesn't sound right to you. Who the hell are you? Uh, do you have a degree in uh, you know atmospheric physics? Because if you don't, I'm sorry, I'm not wasting your time. Whatever it is that you're saying. But that said, even if we do as a society accept the reality of climate change because the scientists tell us that it's happening, then what we do about it and how we pay for it and all that sort of stuff that actually is a broader discussion that needs to be had with you know within society at large. If we're talking about solutions to the climate change issue instead of the problem, then now we want not just the climate scientists who are going to tell us you know, the technical aspects of it. We also want for certain economists, because they're going to tell us the consequences of acting one way or the other. We want political scientists because we want to have a knowledge of you know, different kinds of policies and their consequences. And we want to hear what the general public thinks. You know? So given that it is a problem and given that these are the solutions you know, or a sort of number of solutions, uh, where do we want to go as a society? Which way do we want to go? So there is a role for the public, especially for the informed public, in policy decisions, but not about science. Science is done by the scientists, just like, you know. Otherwise, the rest of us is uh, what in the United States we call Monday, Monday morning quarterbacks, uh, you know, uh, as reference to uh, what Americans call football and, you know, the rest of the world calls American football to distinguish it for real football. Uh, Right, so it's, but I'm sure you, you're in Portugal, so you had the same thing, right? When I was growing up in Italy, everybody on Monday morning would discuss what they would have done better uh, in playing soccer on the, you know, on Sunday, on, on the Sunday before, right? So, ah, oh, they made a mistake, the, the coach made a mistake doing, yeah, whatever. The thing is, you are not the coach, and you probably don't know enough about what was going on. You're not the player, uh, you know, you were not on the field. Those are the experts, those are the people that know how to play the game, let them play the game. Sometimes they make mistakes. You know, teams lose their games, for sure, which means that obviously they didn't play well enough, right? But for us to sort of second guess on the basis of no particular knowledge or, ex or expertise, uh, what the people who actually know what they're talking about do, it seems like not only it's silly, but it's actually dangerous. Because then, then we get into all sorts of pseudoscientific or anti-scientific notions. Yes, I think that is a very important message. And when I talk with people about certain things, for example, I'm very interested in evolutionary psychology that you said that it has certain aspects that you think are already on the borderline of science. But anyway, sometimes I, I talk with, uh, with people about some of the findings that come from evolutionary psychology uh, and people, particularly those that... Uh, for whom it doesn't sound right, those findings don't sound right, particularly according to their folk psychology, right? <laughs> because they, they are very unintuitive. Uh, they very easily get angry and then they try to undermine it by saying, oh, but you're saying that those people say that, but that's just an argument from authority. 
but but right. but then I say exactly what you said. Yeah, they might be wrong uh, certain times and perhaps many times. But uh, do you prefer to to trust someone that uh, that is an expert on that particular field or to trust your intuitions? Right. Yeah. No, that's right. So. The next time you hear somebody saying, oh, but that's an argument from authority. Oh, I'm sorry. I think I lost you there. Uh, Hold on. We're going to be back in a second. There it is. Yes. Um, so, yeah, the next time you, you hear somebody make that, that argument, oh, it's an argument from authority, ask them where they go if they have a toothache. Because, you know, it's like that's an argument from authority. You know, if they say, I'm going to the dentist, it's, well, you're making an argument from authority. You're, you're, you're assuming that the dentist knows what he's doing because he's an expert. Yeah, that's right. That's right. There's no contradiction there in saying that the experts sometimes are wrong because that's an observation. That, that is just a fact of life. Um, but there's no contradiction between that and saying that your best bet is still to go to an expert. You know, not every time you go to the dentist, he's going to fix your teeth. Uh, and not every time you go to the mechanic, he's going to fix your car. Some some cars are unfixable, and some mechanics are better than others, right? You know, uh, so you're going to change mechanic perhaps, but you're not going to do. To, you're not going to go to a priest to fix your your car. Uh, you're still going to go to another mechanic. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I mean it's still a, a reasonable behavior to believe, let's say, in the experts at least temporarily, because. Right. Um, because, I mean, it's impossible for anyone nowadays to properly know the basics of everything that exists, of every scientific field. Because, I mean, of course, that particular person who am I discussing with, if she's interested in knowing more about uh, how climate scientists develop those particular models of how climate will develop in the future, let's say, they can go and if they have the time and if they're interested in doing so and study that in more profundity. But I mean, we yeah. and no, no single person can do that to uh, exactly. uh, about every single field of science, right? Exactly. We have to come up you know, we have to, to accept this notion that we actually know a lot less than we think we know. You know, when I say, for instance, oh, I know that electrons are subatomic particles uh, that are outside of the of, of an atomic nucleus, I don't actually know that. I, I trust physicists to tell me that that is the case. I don't understand this, the, the experiments, the evidence that has actually brought that up. I don't, I don't know. I, I have not studied, I don't have the time. Uh, Perhaps I'm not smart enough, but even if I were smart enough, I just don't have the time, right, to, to do all that sort of stuff. So I can get a ballpark understanding of how these things work, but ultimately, if I have a question about physics, I'm going to go to a physicist. I'm not going to try to Google it and figure it out on my own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So just for us to end on that note, Dr. Piliucci, would you like perhaps to share with people where they can follow, where they can find and follow your work on the internet. Uh, sure, thank you for asking. Uh, they can find me on Twitter at uh, uh, M P I G L I U C C I. So M for Massimo, and then my last name. Uh, I also have a Facebook page uh, under also by my um, under my name where people can follow me, and I blog at uh, Patreon.com again under my own name. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So, Dr. Piliushi, it was a real pleasure to have you on the channel. I've been a big fan of your work for several years now. So, thank you again for taking the time to come on the show. Thank you for having me. It was fun. Hi everybody, thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started this channel last February and have been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. To keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge. Any amount, even $1, would already be a great help. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Peralga Larson and Logorero. Thank you very much for all.